Good morning, everyone. Kids that are headed to Gospel Project, have a great time. Everybody else will be together in John chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there. We are in the middle of a series of sermons, working our way through John 18 and 19. We've called this series The Suffering Servant. These uh, two brief chapters in the Bible cover uh, the span of only, perhaps at the most, a 24-hour period, probably much less. But they are the two of the most important chapters in the whole Bible because they're covering for us the arrest, then trials, and finally the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. It's the most 20, important 24-hour period that's ever been. If you are uh, new with us today, our habit here at Church on Mill as a church family is when we get together on Sundays to simply open the scriptures and study the next passage in the book that we're going through. We do this faithfully together every week because we believe the scriptures to be not only what God spoke in the past, but what he uses to continue to speak to us today. So our prayer for you this morning has been that you would be encouraged in the scriptures. Um, how many of you have been to a play or a musical over at Gamage Auditorium across the street? Wow, the majority. All right. Well, you have no need for me to tell you this, but I'll tell the fourth of you or so who didn't raise your hands. Uh, Grady Gamage Auditorium is the Performing Arts Center across the street from us. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in the 1960s, originally for a city in Iraq, but it didn't work out for it to be built there, so it ended up here on the ASU campus. Maybe you didn't know that little tidbit. We're done for today. We learned something. Um, there have been many, many, many plays come through there, sometimes very prominent plays. Recently, Hamilton played for over a month. Hopefully, you didn't go to that one because you paid for your left kidney if you did. Uh, Les Mis is coming soon. So here in the shadow of Grady Gamage Auditorium, we should ask this question. What makes for a great play? Why is it that people pay so much money to go see a play, and what is it that you're looking for when you do? Well, a good play consists of uh, a good story, and then that story has intriguing characters and conflict. So that's what makes a, a good play. A good story, intriguing characters, and some kind of significant conflict. As Kent Hardy comes to read our text for us this morning, would you watch for those elements present in this story? There's a plot, there's characters, and there's an interesting conflict. So John 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. 
But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them, They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Thank you, Kent. (laughs) One person liked it, Kent, and the rest gave obligatory claps. What's the essential plot in this story? Well, Jesus faces a sham of a trial. And then even though he's treated so cruelly, so inhumanely, so irresponsibly, so unjustly, he continues to display a willing desire to move forward as a faithful substitutionary sacrifice. That's the essential plot of what's happening in this story today. But just like a play you'd see over at Gamage, you don't want just the bare details. You want the nitty-gritty, lovely drama of the characters and the conflict that moves it along. And so would you imagine with me today that you have entered into Gamage, you've been given your program. On your program is a cool picture on the front, then on the inside is is an overview of the plot, and then a breakdown of the main characters. This breakdown of the characters will tell you about the character of the characters and then will also help lay out for us what happens through these characters. So here's the main characters in our story today. There are two high priests named Annas and Caiaphas. Then there's the person on trial, Jesus. And finally, there is, of course, the most famous of all the disciples, Peter. 
So let's together this morning just simply walk through these characters and consider how each of them contribute to the plot of this story. First, we'll go with uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, here's the deal. If you ever have a boy, don't name him Annas. Last gathering, I was so committed to not messing up the name Annas and saying something that would embarrass everyone that I messed the name up other ways. So hopefully, all you'll hear today is Annas. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then taken to Annas' house. Annas was one who had been high priest for many years and then had been disposed of by Rome and replaced by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So these two high priests both comprise the first main characters in our story. The purpose of bringing Jesus to Annas was to, in a sense, present him before the Jewish leaders in order to have a Jewish trial. But even a cursory reading of this would show us this was a dishonest meeting at best. The Jewish leaders had predetermined to put Jesus to death. All the way back in John chapter 11, verse 53, we see, so from that day on, that day is the day Jesus had brought Lazarus back from the dead. So from the day Lazarus was raised from the dead, they decided, they made plans to put him to death. So however many months prior to John 18, John 11 is, the Jewish leader's motive, the high priest and the Pharisees, their motive had been to work out circumstances in such a way that they could have Jesus killed. When we meet Annas questioning Jesus, what we see is not really a trial at all. This is much more like a bloodthirsty mob working out the technicalities so that they can see their death sentence carried out. All the while, pretending to have the upper hand morally, pretending to be the ones standing for truth, pretending to be the ones who were just. Now that background helps us understand the characters of Annas and Caiaphas. They were both high priests. What in the world does that mean? Does this mean they stood up higher than all the other priests? No. There's a significance to the word high, and it has nothing to do with their height. The high priest was the chief leader over all the other religious authorities at the time. This was an extremely important role. One held up, no pun intended, with the highest of respect by all the Jews. This was seen as the most important person alive for the Jews. This was the person who would go into the temple to make sacrifices. This is the person who would make prayers on behalf of the people before God. This is the one who would even go in once a year into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the only person allowed in there, and then only once a year to offer a sacrifice and make petition before God in God's very presence on behalf of all the people. In essence, the high priest was the representative of the entire nation of God's people 
before God on their behalf. Now, Annas should have been the most holy, the most honorable, the most upright, the most godly person on the earth. And yet, what we find in him is nothing more than a power-hungry, hypocritical fake. Imagine someone you really trust, someone you think of as further along than you spiritually, somebody in a position of authority, and yet that someone turns out to not really love God, to not really follow the law of God, to not really be helpful to you, but rather harmful. That's what we have with Annas and Caiaphas. How do we know all of that? Well, look down with me at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. The Jewish authorities had to condemn Jesus to death before they could get Rome involved to carry out that sentence. In case you've not studied the history before, just very briefly, and this is important to understand, Jerusalem in this time period, indeed all of Judah, did not have final authority. They were, in fact, captives. Rome had conquered most of the known world at this time. And then they had placed in every province a puppet king. And so the Jews, like the other people groups who had been conquered, had quasi-leaders of some type who were their people, but they had no final authority. And so if you wanted to carry out an execution as a Jewish leader, you no longer had the ability to do that. You had to make your case before Rome in order that Rome would then carry that sentence out. The time that this has happened the most closely to us would be when Britain had conquered much of the known world. And they had puppet leaders in place in many of the places that they'd conquered. And their laws were limited. Very similar to what happened in this time period. And so Jesus was arrested and he was brought to... I'm hoping that you'll help me say it. That way I won't mess it up. Come on. Annas, great job. They brought him to Annas' house in order that Annas could question him. Now, it says that he questioned him about two things, his disciples and his teaching. Now, how do we know that they approached this in a way that wasn't right? Well, here's another fact behind the passage that would help you to understand what's going on. If you had been accused of a crime in the first century in the city of Jerusalem, the way the Jewish law system worked, let's pick on Stephen. Stephen, wearing his Kansas shirt, which would have been weird way back then, Stephen has been suspected of a crime. And so he's arrested. And at the moment of his arrest, he is therefore accused of a particular thing. And then when his time for his trial comes, Stephen doesn't say anything. Stephen has 
witnesses brought forward who are for him, and Stephen has witnesses brought forward who are against him. Stephen says absolutely nothing. Everything hinges on what do the witnesses say. And legally, he's allowed people that say, Stephen did this, and other people who say Stephen didn't do this. That's how the system worked. And yet, when Jesus was brought before Annas and later before Caiaphas, did that happen? No. Jesus had no witnesses for him. They had all run away. Jesus really didn't have any witnesses against him other than the judge, the high priest himself. And so we see here something about the character of these high priests. Their whole aim was not to discern right and wrong. Their whole aim was to see Jesus killed. These were not morally upright, godly people. And so they came to Jesus and they asked him a bunch of questions. Now maybe they went something like this. Are you, Jesus, raising up a band of rebel, law-breaking insubordinates? Jesus, how big is your group? We hear you have followers. How many followers do you have? And where are your followers now? And if your teaching is so great and your followers are so sincere, then why do you have only a few? Look at me. Look at us. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of followers. And you have a measly few. And what makes you, Jesus, worthy of being followed? You're not even a real rabbi. You didn't go to rabbi school. You didn't get formal training. Nobody taught you to read the law. Who do you think you are? And what have you been teaching? What makes you think you can rightly interpret the law? You don't even have a copy of the Torah yourself. You're nothing. And what, what is it that you're teaching? Are you teaching you're the Messiah? Because you certainly have less power and authority and influence than I. These are the types of questions Annas and Caiaphas would have been asking Jesus. Again, not to discern truth from error, right from wrong. Not to execute justice, but to bring about murder. What's so odd about this is they claim Jesus is breaking the law of God by claiming to be the Son of God. All the while, the true Son of God is right before them and the true one who fulfilled the law is there among them. So friends, Annas and Caiaphas are not good guys. They should have embodied right from wrong, but they couldn't. They were bound in their sin, unable and unwilling to come to God. Which brings us to our second character. So imagine with me again, you've opened your playbook, and now you're looking at the next character in the story. This character is named Jesus. Now, John through 1 through 17 has taught us so much about him. But what about this scene? What about this play? What is the unique contribution these verses make? 
Well, they show us that Jesus is the true high priest, the faithful witness, and the willing self-sacrifice. Again, they tell us that Jesus is the true high priest, the faithful witness, and the willing self-sacrifice. Annas and Caiaphas were supposed to stand for God's truth, but they didn't. Jesus was told he was not standing for truth, but he was, in fact, the truth. Do you see the great irony the gospel writer John is painting for us? Jesus tells the truth. He intercedes for people rightly. He mediates without sinful, selfish power grab. And in all of those things, we are being shown that Jesus is the true high priest. Now, this is great news for us today. It's wonderful news. Friends, we live in a time when there are many, many, many people claiming to have some measure of spiritual authority, claiming to speak truth, claiming to be intent on helping us, and yet they speak lies. In fact, we live in a period of time unlike any other time before us. Most of us have in our pockets or our purses, even now, a phone that has access to billions of documents on the internet claiming some sort of spiritual truth. Now, the good thing about that is many of those things tell us the truthfulness of what God has said. But many others do not. And never before has, have people been able to just throw up any piece of information they want and claim it as truth and have such a broad, extensive, vast audience. But maybe even bringing it more close to home, who do you know? personally, that has claimed some sense of responsibility, some authority, some right to speak to you on behalf of God. And you took their counsel and you listened, you did what they said, but then you later found out they were not speaking the truth. They were hypocritical. They were phony. Friends, that's Caiaphas. That's Annas. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is the true witness. Jesus always says what's right. You can trust what Jesus says because he's the true high priest. He's the better mediator. He's the one who always says, listen to me, I tell the truth, for I am the truth. Friends, you can count on God. You can count on God's Word. So do you see this great contrast between Annas and Caiaphas and Jesus? It couldn't be clearer. Now look at Jesus' response, if you would. Verse 18, chapter 18, verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Do you hear Jesus sticking the knife in and twisting it? 
he is boldly confronting the high priest. He's saying, you have had me arrested secretly. At night, snuck into your house. You are doing this privately because it's wrong. He's saying, Annas, I am not at all like you. I have spoken the truth publicly, openly, and plainly. I have given full, open, faithful, clear public teaching. I've done it where only you are supposed to do it, actually in the temple. I am not like you. I speak the truth for I am the truth. Now, if you're unsure that that's actually what's going on, that I'm not reading into what's being said here, then simply look at verse 22. Jesus bound after he spoke those words to the high priest. What happened? He is smacked, open-handed, assaulted. Because what he said was so confrontational. Jesus' response to that smack, verse 23, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? Friends, Jesus here calmly, authoritatively, peacefully, boldly responds. Jesus is not scared. Jesus is not overwhelmed. Jesus is not unsure. Jesus is not indifferent. Jesus stands for truth because he is truth. He demonstrates that he's a better witness. Now why? Well, because Jesus knew all along where this was headed. He knew exactly what would happen. Jesus had the power that when he was struck, he could have simply looked at that idiot who struck him and in his divine power caused that man's arm to fall off. He could have killed him. And yet peacefully, he simply recounted and retold the truth. Jesus is not only the better high priest, he's not only the true witness, but he served as those things because he came ultimately to be the self-sacrifice for all people who would ever trust Christ as Savior. Now before we look at the last character together in the story, let's take a moment, brothers and sisters, to stop and pause, take a deep breath, get our noses out of our programs, and consider the significance of what we've just said. Jesus is the true high priest, the faithful witness, and the willing self-sacrifice. Do you know what that means? Brothers and sisters, it means that regardless of what you did last night, Christian, as you looked temptation square in the eyes, made the willful decision to follow it instead of following God. As you served 
has nothing better than Annas or Caiaphas by giving in to that temptation. You need this morning not fear the wrath of God because Jesus has already served as your faithful substitute. And this means, Christian, that irrespective of your actions, you need never, ever wonder if God will again turn from goodwill toward you back to condemnation. He will never do that. For all the condemnation that you deserve has been given to Christ. Now maybe you didn't go out and give yourself to wanton pleasure in a sinful way in the last 24 hours. But certainly Friday or Thursday or Wednesday, you, just like me, did something you know to be wrong. This morning, if we would but confess our sin, then we would find and re-experience the great love of God that is ours in Christ. Friends, that's why this story is so wonderful. Because Jesus is interceding for you now, asking the Father to remain faithful, kind, loving, full of goodwill toward you, continually treating you as He treats His Son, Jesus. And we are assured of that being the Father's disposition toward us. And we need never fear that God would lie to us because Jesus is the truth. And we need never wonder if we will have to pay for our sin again because Christ has already paid for it. Friends, this means you don't need a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of Muhammad and a little bit of Lawrence Krauss, and a little bit of Joseph Smith, and a little bit of YouTube entrepreneurial self-help guru, and a little bit of Joel Osteen. You don't need all the truth claims out there that are actually spiritual lies. You fully, completely only need Jesus Christ. This is the most wonderful thing we could hear this morning. Jesus is always and forever the faithful witness to truth. For He is truth. Now just briefly to non-Christian friends who are here this morning, it's our great privilege to have you and thank you for taking time out of your day to consider today the claims of Christ we, as a church, don't want to lie to you. We don't want to misrepresent the truth. Friends, the truth is that nothing of what I have just said is true in your experience thus far. You have not found Jesus to be your high priest. You have not found Jesus to be mediating for you. You have not found the disposition of God towards you to be benevolent and full of grace. Quite the opposite. Friend, God is angry with sin, and God will have justice. God's disposition toward you today, the book of Romans says, is that you are at war with Him. That's what sin is. That's what 
saying, no, I'm not going to follow God and submit to Him. I'm going to instead go my own way. And that is the plight of every human being who has ever lived. But that same book, that book of Romans says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Non-Christian friend, you can be rescued out of sin and given the joy of a right relationship with God if today you would turn from sin and turn to Him. Now let's consider together in our remaining few moments that we have the last character in our program, Peter. Now if you've never heard of Peter before, Peter is the most prominent of all of Jesus' disciples. Peter is the, the one who's always listed first whenever the disciples are listed. He's the one who often speaks for the rest of the disciples. He's the only one who got out of the boat and walked on water. He's the only one who had that kind of belief in Jesus. He's, he's the first one out of all of Jesus' friends who said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He's the one who objected to the foot washing because he recognized the holiness, the otherness of Jesus. Everywhere we turn, Peter was doing what the other disciples wouldn't. Now, I don't mean that he would have been an easy guy to be friends with. He often spoke first and thought later and quit nudging the person next to you. That's not kind. But Peter was a bold, courageous, in many ways, in many ways remarkable man. But today if you went to the city of Jerusalem, you took a short little walk outside the old city walls, and you came to the patio that is built on top of the patio and the house where this event occurred. So it's still there today. You would find a statue. That statue is not of Caiaphas. It's not of Annas. It's not of Jesus. It's of Peter. And also, next to Peter is a statue of a rooster. Peter, in John chapter 18, makes a most heinous mistake. Imagine your greatest, most embarrassing sin being immortalized in a statue so that everybody who ever comes to see where it happened would get to know, this is what a moron you are. That's what Peter has. Now, what did Peter do that was so wrong? Well, before we consider it directly, let me read to you from Mark 14. So we're going to back up a couple of hours from the events of John 18 to something that Peter said to Jesus. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, this is all the disciples, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
But Jesus said emphatically, but Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. Brothers and sisters, may this be a warning to us. That every time we self-declare in the midst of self-reliance that we will preserve our testimony of Christ on our own, then we can be assured that denial is not far behind. Peter, just hours later, is met first by, verse 17 shows us, a servant girl. Now that may not strike you, ladies, in an offensive way, but it ought to. Because John was careful to record for us that as Peter came up and wanted to peer in and see Jesus' proceedings, he couldn't come inside Annas' house into the courtyard because he didn't know the high priest. And outside was standing the first knock against this person is servant. So think nothing, no power, no rights. This is a slave. And then second, woman. Women in the first century had no voice. Ladies, your voice couldn't even be heard in trial. And so what's, what's the author showing us here? Peter, a few hours earlier, said, Jesus, I will die for you. And now he won't stand up to a measly slave and a woman at that. Last week, we considered together as Jesus was questioned, he said, I am he. Ego, me." Peter, as he was questioned by this woman, said, Uk, me." In other words, Jesus is the true witness. But Peter is the anti-witness. The exact opposite. Peter is clearly everything Jesus isn't. And he's the very best of Jesus' followers. Now the second witness, maybe Peter will do better this time. I mean, you've told a white lie, right? Like, your, your wife asks you, do I look fat in these jeans? What are you going to say? Thank you. Even if it's true, you're going to likely give a little white lie. Maybe that's all Peter's done here. He just, he just wanted to get in, and then he'd start telling the truth and be a good witness for Jesus. But yet we find him again a second time. This time, John's careful to tell us he's not standing outside against the world. Where is he? He's, he's around the fire. He is one of them. He has joined the crowds against Jesus. He's warming himself now in the ways of the world. 
And they say to him, you're not, you're not a follower of Jesus, are you? Notice the first, uh, the first question and the second question both assume a negative answer. The way the sentences are constructed, both questioners expected that Peter would say no. So not only can he not stand up to a woman, and then not only can he not stand up to a crowd that expects him to say, yeah, I don't know him. But in the third denial, when yet another woman says, you're not, you're not one of, you're not one of his, are you, in this crowd of people? Then in this third denial, one of the relatives of the man who had his ear cut off, ouch, says, you, you, I saw you there. So now the third denial is expecting a positive answer, and Peter gives in yet again. Peter's denials are horrific. They might seem to you just like mere words on a page, but This was the one who had given three years of his life to Jesus. Walked away from his business. Traveled around, living on the ground, eating whatever he could find. Submitting himself to everything Jesus said. Pledging his whole life to this rabbi. Only to at the very first moment there's opposition given. It's disgusting. Before we turn up our noses in arrogance toward Peter, we ought hold up a mirror. Brothers and sisters, there is the propensity of Peter in all of us. We have all, in some way, shape, or form, denied Jesus. We have all been ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps in the last seven days, brothers and sisters, even since we last gathered here, there was an opportunity presented to you by a gracious God to make testimony of Christ. But in cowardice, you remained silent. Perhaps there was another opportunity presented and You were given opportunity to speak up for Christ as you were even questioned about your faith. But instead, you took the easy way and said, no, I I, I don't know him. Friends, how many times have you been an anti-witness? How many times have you been ashamed of the gospel? How many times have you self-protected like Peter did instead of standing for your Savior? May we not hear the story of Peter as though we are better, but see within him what is within all of us. The potential to deny Jesus every single day is in every single one of us. Never, ever, ever rely on your own spiritual strength because that will ensure your spiritual downfall. Now, thankfully, as we'll learn in a few weeks together, Peter was forgiven. He'll move from the coal fire of John 18 to the coal fire at the end of the book. 
in which he is restored. May that serve as an encouragement to us today that Jesus restores, that Jesus heals. Now, in closing, you may have noticed as we read that this passage does not flow very easily. It goes from Jesus to Peter's first denial to Jesus to Peter's second and third denial. Now, is John a sloppy writer? Is John given to get confused and wander? Is is this an example of one of those emails that you hit send on and then realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that? No, Peter knows exactly what he's doing. And so what he's done for us is very carefully weave together Jesus giving right, true testimony and Peter giving false testimony. He's showing that even the best of all of the disciples cannot speak in a truthful, honorable way. Jesus is the faithful witness. Peter is the anti-witness. Brothers and sisters, may that cause us today as a church to think long and hard about the times we have been Peter times we have been an anti-witness with our lifestyles or with our words, that we might turn from that sin and praise the true, faithful high priest. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this incredibly helpful text. I pray for people here today who are not Christians. God, would you This morning, convince them of their need for you. I pray even now, they would turn from sin and turn to you. Confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. Father, I also pray that we as a church family would be an increasingly faithful witness for you. Thank you that we can always trust what Jesus says and that he is always making intercession for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.